Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This episode will focus on the views of Australians. Their troops had already had a major impact on the war, particularly as they joined the Canadians in the relief of Mafeking, for example. When the Anglo-Boer War broke out in October 1899, most corners of the empire were convinced that the handful of Boers would be brought under control within a few weeks. However, it was Black Week in December 1899 that shook the empire and its commonwealth. Remember those battles, Colenso, Stormberg, Machesfontein? After this, in Australia for instance, speakers toured the towns, particularly in the southeast of the country, promoting the imperial cause and the demonization of the Boers in the regional press was pretty complete by February 1900. They were now known as the treacherous savages who fired on hospitals, convoys of the wounded women and children. They poisoned water, used dum-dum bullets, buried their own critically wounded and robbed the dead. Membership of what were known as the rifle clubs jumped after Black Week in Australia, where mainly urban Australians rediscovered their roots by training in the use of rifles. New clubs were formed, including some formed by and for women. But were the rifle clubs capable of defending their own colony in the event of an invasion? Apparently not, according to a Yakandanda's councillor Beatty in Victoria. In February 1900, he called for the establishment of units of mounted rifles or rangers in every town and district. Although he had no criticism to make of these earlier rifle clubs, he claimed that they would be virtually useless in the face of an invasion. It is of course not entirely clear who would be invading Australia, but the war in South Africa had applied Australian minds. Councillor Beatty, for example, had a son in uniform in South Africa, and he reflected a long-standing demand in the region for local defence units that could defend both hearth and home. Beatty's call sparked a number of public meetings across Australia, supporting his call for the establishment of a proper mounted rifle or ranger units. The government's response at the time, however, was cool. While this was the official reaction, in small towns across Australia, contingents of men began to show up for assessment in order to be shipped off to the Anglo-Boer War, along with their horses and equipment. One of these small towns, for example, was Rutherglen in northeastern Victoria, which was located near the Murray River border with New South Wales. That's where 56 hopefuls marched down the main street one day, watched by a large crowd in early 1900. Its would-be trainer, a man by the name of Otter, began by rejecting horses rather than the owners. Some horses were on the pony side, others were stallions, others would be unable to carry the weight required by men in full kit. The surviving applicants were then put through their paces, including trotting and cantering in a circle, which produced confusion in the ranks and mirth in the crowd. Otter then set out the conditions of service for the 40 men he had selected. They would sign on for three years, 12 compulsory drills, 75 voluntary drills, and a musketry course was mandatory. A special saddle was needed which cost £3.17. The uniform required would cost an additional £3.03. Their kit, though, was free. He ended with the admonition... If you don't want to drill and you want to run after cricket and football, then I say resign at once. One man promptly did so, although whether it was the financial demands made or a preference for football or cricket was never revealed.
A bugler was then added, and the men signed a declaration in the courthouse. At the end of the swearing-in, Sergeant Major Algi, the regional instructor, addressed the men. Now you are mine, body and soul, he said, and marched them into the park for their first drill again, much to the enjoyment of interested onlookers. The period between Black Week and the fall of the Boer capitals in mid-1900 was described by Australians as one of skyrocketing patriotism. It burnt fiercely before vanishing, rather like the devastating bushfires that had swept the region in Australia from December 1899 until they too finally sputtered and died in May 1900. Suspicions about the loyalty of the region's Irish Catholic population were ridiculed by local editors and were allayed when a local priest wrote a passionate defence of Britain's actions in South Africa. Dr Fitchett, author of Deeds That Won the Empire, as well as Dame Nellie Melba, came under suspicion, along with Henry Bourne Higgins, John Murray and other pro-Boer members of Parliament who had opposed sending colonial troops to South Africa. They were on the receiving end of scathing editorials. The Ovens and Murray Advertiser, for example, pointedly noted that seven of Britain's military leaders in South Africa were Irish. One reader demanded to know what type of Irish they were. The editor in a signed piece replied that Roberts and Kitchener were Church of England, Cleary, Kelly Kenny, McCarthy and O'Leary were Roman Catholic, and Watchop was Presbyterian. But this remained a sensitive issue, and regional editors were hardly helped by the region's Catholic clergy. For, although deploying war in general, the majority of the region's Protestant ministers actively and publicly promoted the war effort. Their Catholic colleagues, however, were largely silent. It went further. In June 1900, three draftsmen were thrown out of the Australian Board of Engineers after they had refused to sing the national anthem to celebrate the relief of Mafeking. One was a German national, one was a German national who had taken British citizenship, and the third was Swiss. Whilst the metropolitan press in the big cities roundly condemned the men, the regional press roundly condemned the board, so you can see it was confused. Some Australians took position totally opposed to the war, and probably the most vocal at the time was Beechworth's congregational minister called Albert Rivett. He was a man of strong views. He deplored sectarianism, opposed the white Australia policy, championed the state school system as well as Sunday burials, and was also what we'd call a little loopy. For example, he believed that the second coming was near and castigated a world that had moved too far from God for his liking. Rivet was opposed to jingoism, militarism and war. From its beginning to its end, he publicly opposed the war in South Africa. Britain had no right to be in South Africa, he wrote. It was a conquered country taken from the Boers who had tamed a wilderness. Britain's relationship with the enemy was one of broken promises and greed, he said. The war was being fought for diamonds and gold, for roads, and what he called the South African gang, not liberty. Abuse heaped on those opposed to the war did not stop Rivet, who was now accused of treason, and some called for him to be silenced. Rivet continued his anti-war crusade into 1901. He savaged the scorched earth policy being pursued by Kitchener in South Africa, which we're going to hear about in coming podcasts. Still, volunteers continued flowing from Australia to South Africa. Volunteers for service were young and single. Selection for service was something of a lottery, 
Doubts dominated the public rhetoric at farewells. Would colonial volunteers be a match for the Boer and a worthy peer of the Tommy in defence of empire? The exact number of men from the region who served in South Africa is difficult to establish and most went in small clutches or companies of around 150. But we do know quite a bit about who these Australian men were. Embarkation rolls give a very clear picture of the men who served. The vast majority, or 98%, were single. Over half were under the age of 25. Over 90% were under the age of 30. Almost 60% came from rural backgrounds. 21% gave their occupation as farmers or graziers. 38% listed their occupations as bush laborers, station hands, stockmen, and horsebreakers. The majority of these volunteers came from the rifle clubs. They included two men who would rise through the ranks and serve with distinction, Captain Victor Hennessy from Glenrowan and Lieutenant Stephen Beatty from Yakandanda. Hennessy enlisted with the first Victorian contingent and would remain in South Africa for the duration of the war, only coming home in 1902. Beatty enlisted with the 2nd Victorian contingent, was wounded and repatriated, and rejoined with the 5th Victorian contingent going back to South Africa. He would later enlist in the Great War and died on the Western Front in France in 1916. Empire and an imperial British heritage were anchored within an Australian context, with an emphasis on the Australian as a soldier. The hardships of Australian life had produced men more than worthy of standing shoulder to shoulder with Britain's best and were crucial in their support of the war. At least, that's how the Australians saw it. They believed emphatically that their fellow citizens were full of bravery, action and daring and that they could beat the Boers on their own terms. Or, to put it another way, Australians could whip the feathers off anything in South Africa, as one wrote. Although a minority of the men found something to admire in the Boers, the great majority uncritically recycled the propaganda that had demonized the Boers in their letters home. The Boer women attracted the strongest censure. Most found little romance in battle, but others were shocked by black South Africans. There is a clear link between these men and what's called the White Australia Policy. As John McQuilton writes in Australia's Communities and the Boer War, these men were not prepared for South Africa's black population or their numbers, and as with the time, generally described blacks as subhuman. It affirmed their commitment to the racism that would become the white Australia policy. In many ways, this policy continues today. But the Boer women shocked these colonials. In one instance, a soldier author called Mick Sharry described how two of his comrades were shot dead by a Boer woman as the men sought water at the woman's well. The woman, he wrote, clapped their hands with delight as the two men fell. It's not clear from Sharry's writing what happened to these two clapping women. Another Australian soldier called Edwin Eddy described how Boer girls drew their skirts to one side as they passed Australian troops as though we have some infectious disease, he said. This negative view of Boer women became so deeply entrenched that men who had once balked at orders to clear the women and children from farms or relocation to concentration camps lost their reservations. The men's response to the Boer women, of course, reflected deeply held views about the place of women in society. Boer women who assisted their men's war effort by providing intelligence and logistic support travelled with their menfolk and who killed enemy soldiers were alien to the Australian worldview at the time. 
The dark side of Australia's involvement emerged at times. For example, soldier Hugh Ronald's unit, he writes of capturing a Boer camp, or what's known as a lager, whilst the Boer men were on patrol. Ronald's describes with disgust the way 25 Queenslanders in the unit rushed the women's quarters. They were there for an hour before the Boers returned from patrol and drove them away. As with all conflicts that trap civilians, rape and sexual abuse goes hand in hand when an alien army roams the landscape. When it came to actual fighting, some were exhilarated by the charge up the slopes of Kopis, while other Australians thought the experience was more akin to a lunatic asylum let loose, as one wrote. The men universally loathed the dum-dum bullets used by the Boers and shrapnel from the enemy's artillery because shrapnel had, as Charles Mayhew wrote, a nasty knack of spreading and firing its own bullet. Above all, they feared being wounded. It took days by ambulance wagon and an open truck in a train to reach a hospital. Few men, though, admitted to another aspect of what happened in a mobile war. Although they had been selected as Bushmen, as they were known, the African felt was not the Australian Bush. Some Australians wrote of being separated from the unit. Only a few admitted separated meant lost. Jack Mason did and added, What a nice Bushman I am! He said he'd been lost for 60 hours. He'd had a rifle but no ammunition and some curious lions for company. So the Australians' war in South Africa was essentially one fought on horseback, and at first they were taken aback by the hardy Boer pony, which appeared indestructible, and as we know, Denise Raitz rode one. Initially, Australians had dismissed the pony, but quickly changed their minds. The same Mick Sherry described the Boer ponies as the hardiest I ever saw, while another called James Dare admired the Boer pony because, despite its size, he said it was terribly good and sure-footed, and it was quick. But it did have a failing apparently common to the breed, and those who had fostered its development, his mount was what's known as full of tricks. The cavalrymen in charge of the British Army, however, never stooped to consider the advantages that a pony bred for conditions on the felt could offer in the war against the Boer. They preferred their larger mounts, but these were prone to contract local diseases. Food also was a constant theme in these Australian letters. Patrols on the felt were poorly supplied, and the men had little time for the British Army staples of bully beef and biscuits. The biscuits, in particular... One man wrote they were as hard as the knobs of hell and needed a hammer to break them up, said another. Then there was the great silence, evident in all soldiers' letters. That silence was about sex. The men never wrote specifically about any liaisons between themselves and women, yet they were occasionally hinted at. A soldier called Tiddeman, for example, wrote that the girls in Hopetown in the Cape were treating the Australian soldiers a1. We know that legions of prostitutes and good-time girls followed Lord Robert's army throughout the campaign, but official letters avoided talking about these women. South Africa was an exotic place for the Australians. Here were the animals they had read about in school, lions and leopards, antelope and zebra, ostriches, elephants, locusts, and thousands of guinea fowl. Men from labouring backgrounds were also disturbed to find that the jobs they did back home were done by black South Africans, and it demeaned their own worth as workers, they thought. They felt that both Anglo and Boer had become lazy, 
marking the beginning of the degeneration of the white race in South Africa. Others were shocked by the punishment handed out to blacks by the military authorities, which include flogging, which was common. An Australian court, William Kelly, wrote a letter to his family back home and noted with distaste that floggings left the backs of punished men looking like raw steak. But the true nature of war is always really unknown back home. One poem by the doomed Harry Morant, or Breaker Morant as he's known, written before his execution, summed up the sentiment. The Australian wrote, When seated at your Christmas chair, pray think of us poor soldiers here, on bully beef and biscuits fed, and breezy felt to make our bed. But still we happy as we go, and hope such things you'll never know, and may you always have good luck, as well as puddings and roast duck. While the Australians back home debated about how and when to enter the war, back in the eastern Transvaal, early September had seen Lord Roberts' forces breaking up the Boer army, led by General Louis Boerter. The Boers had split into two large parties, the larger one with the guns falling back upon Kruger's post and the others retiring to Pilgrim's Rest. Amid cloudy peaks and hardly passable ravines, the two long-enduring armies still wrestled for final mastery. To the northeast of Leidenberg, between the town and Spitzkorp, for example, there is a formidable ridge called the Mauschberg, and here again the enemy were found to be standing at bay, according to the English. Even this fine position could not be held against the rush of three regiments, the Devons, the Royal Irish, and the Royal Scots, who were let loose upon it. Mountain mists saved the defeated burghers from a close pursuit, but the hills were carried. The British losses on that day, September 8th, 13 killed, 25 wounded, and of these, 38 half were accounted for by one of these strange malignant freaks that can neither be foreseen nor prevented in war, and it is one I have personally seen, and it's brutal. A shrapnel shell fired at a distance burst right over the volunteer company of the Gordons, who were marching in column. 19 men fell in that one incident alone. But by the 9th of September, General Buller was still pushing forward to Spitzkorp, his guns and the first rifles overpowering a weak rearguard resistance by the Boers. On the 10th of September, he had reached Klipchat, which is halfway between Marshburg and Spitzkorp. The Boers streamed through the passes, and when they realized the British units could overtake them, they flung 13 of their ammunition wagons over the cliffs to prevent them from falling into the hands of the British horsemen. The Boers also used tactics that took the British by surprise. In one case, for example, Strathcona's horse pressed too closely upon the retreating commando, when suddenly men who were dragging the leading Long Tom artillery piece swung it around and fired at the cavalry, less than a kilometre behind. The cavalry had to retire, leaving a few men wounded. Meanwhile, in Britain, election fever had begun, and both the Boer War and the Boxer Rebellion in China would influence that vote. And at the same time, Transvaal President Paul Kruger had travelled to Delagoa Bay, or what is known as Maputo. That's in Mozambique. Of course, back in 1900, it was called Portuguese East Africa. The old Transvaal President was awaiting a ship to take him to Europe, where he had campaigned on his people's behalf. We'll hear a little more about that next week, along with other international developments. Please check out our website at abwarpodcast.com and of course please remember you can send an email to me through that site or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>